It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist. And coming up on today's show, I speak with Rufus Pollack, the founder and president of Open Knowledge, about his new book. Can we pay innovators at the same time as have openness and the freedom of choice and enterprise that that brings? And how a new trial in India has identified a simple solution to increase productivity. The group that had been given the specs, their productivity increased by 20 percentage points more than the control group. But first, the self-driving car has been on the horizon for a long time now. And after lots of recent bad publicity, for example, the death of a cyclist in May in an Uber trial, it could be asked, has the technology overpromised? However, a company called Drive AI has just started a new six-month trial of self-driving vans in Texas. Its simple approach could provide a useful foundation for the technology to grow. I'm joined in the studio by Tom Standage, the deputy editor at The Economist, to discuss the new trial. Hello, Tom. Hello. So, Tom, tell us, what is the trial doing? This is a very interesting trial because it's different from the sorts of things that other companies are trying. A lot of companies are trying to build an all-singing, all-dancing autonomous vehicle that can sort of do everything a human driver can do and cope with all of the situations that you might encounter. And that's really hard. And this trial is interesting because they've simplified the problem enormously. They've limited the trial to an area of a city in Texas called Frisco. And they've got seven vehicles that are driving around in that area that can carry people within essentially an office park, a retail area, and a sort of entertainment area. And within that area, you can hail the vehicle and you have to actually go to fixed stops to be picked up and dropped off. But I think that is actually part of the autonomous vehicle future. I think that's going to happen more generally. Uber's actually doing that with human-driven vehicles already in some cities. So essentially, they are acknowledging what the limitations of the technology are today and saying, let's figure out how we can deploy a system now that actually works and then scale it up rather than trying to jump straight to a vehicle that can drive like a human. What makes this actually a trial? Because actually what you've described is the technology that's available today. Right. So they're running this for six months. But during that time, things are going to change slightly. So they intend, for example, to increase the area. They're only running it during the day. That takes away a whole load of problems. Uh, It makes it much easier. They've painted the vehicles orange. So they're really obviously something different from the other vehicles. And um, Andrew Ung, who's the chairman of the company and is a leading light in deep learning and AI research, makes the analogy with school buses. And he says, school buses are yellow. Everyone knows when they see a school bus that's yellow, it's a school bus and it's going to behave in a certain way. It's going to start and stop. You have different expectations for it. And it's the same, we think, with um, autonomous vehicles. And his argument is, if you label them as looking differently and you don't pretend they're just another vehicle, people will have different expectations. Another thing these vehicles have is 
because they have screens on the outside so they can communicate with other road users like pedestrians. So at the moment, an autonomous vehicle might stop as you're crossing the road. Has it really seen you? Is it about to start charging forward and run you over? You don't know. If it's got a screen on it that says, please cross, then you go, ah, it's seen me and you and you cross. So it's just lots of little things like this that they've they've sort of put together. And the result is, they hope, a much more sort of pragmatic approach to deploying self-driving vehicles rather than trying to leap to the vehicle that can do everything. This is so interesting because I think what we're seeing is two features we're seeing elsewhere in AI. One is a, a maturation in how they think about the product. And secondly, a human-centric version of the technology, recognizing that they're not in a world of automatons and algorithms. In fact, they have to interact in the real world where there's human beings. Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, Andrew Ng is one of the pioneers of deep learning. He was one of the people who got deep learning to work on graphics chips way back in the day in 2009. And he and his team built this system that basically made deep learning go 100 times faster. And that was kind of the beginning of the big bang of, of, of modern AI. And one of the tricks of AI has always been if you can't build a system that can solve a complicated problem, simplify the problem. There's a lovely example of how they've done that here. Roadworks are a notorious problem for self-driving vehicles. I remember um, going in a self-driving vehicle, an Uber vehicle in Pittsburgh. And one of the times that the driver had to take over was when we were going through roadworks because the road markings hadn't been repainted. And the roadworks are changing every day, every night. You know, it's a, it's a nightmare. So that's one of the things that's really difficult for these vehicles. So how are they dealing with that in Frisco with Drive AI? It's really simple. They have the city tell them every day where the roadworks are, and then they don't go to those roads. They just drive around them. This sort of thing is how you <laughs> how you solve these problems. Now, you might look at all of this and say, this is cheating. But I would look at this and say, this is engineering. And I think one of the nice points that Andrew Ng makes is that he says that this is a team that has a really good sense of what deep learning can and cannot do. And if anyone knows what deep learning can and cannot do, it's it's him since he was, he was there at the beginning. So what does this tell us about the deployment of first self-driving cars. What, what are we learning from this? There's a sort of repeated historical mistake that we keep making. We thought that horseless carriages, cars, were going to be the carriage, you know, it was going to be exactly the same just with no, no horse. And of course, cars change the world. And then we're thinking, well, driverless cars are going to be just like cars without drivers. They're still going to have steering wheels and, and we're still going to own them. And no, 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 that's not what's going to happen either. And now we're making the same mistake potentially with robo-taxis, these sort of driverless Ubers, which is we sort of expect they're going to work exactly the way that Ubers work now, only not have a driver. And I don't think they are. I think they are going to have to work in a different way. No, I love it because, of course, self-driving cars are the canary in the coal mine for artificial intelligence in society. So what do you think this trial suggests in terms of how AI will be deployed more broadly? Well, that, again, is another way that this trial differs from what we've seen elsewhere. If you look at how Uber has handled its tests, I mean, they tested in San Francisco without a license because they said their interpretation of California law was that they didn't need one. Then they had an accident and uh, beat a hasty retreat, I think. In Pittsburgh, they started off sort of communicating with the government, cooperating with the government, but they ended up having quite an adversarial relationship. What Drive AI is doing in Frisco is working very closely. They've told the emergency services about these vehicles. Again, how you get self-driving vehicles to deal with emergency vehicles is a kind of classic problem in the field. They're working with them on the roadworks. They've had town hall meetings to talk to the local community about this and say, this is how you can recognize our vehicles. We're not trying to sort of pass them off as ordinary cars. We've labeled them. It says self-driving vehicle on the side and they're orange. So they are really, really trying to get ahead of any kind of backlash, any kind of 
these technology companies are coming in here and running people over um, kind of concern. So they've started with this deliberately very cautious small-scale trial, and they're hoping they'll be able to to expand it and go from there. But I just think it's a, it's a it's such a refreshingly different approach to what we've heard from some other companies in the industry. So I think it's a, a trial worth watching. Tom, that's really interesting. Thank you very much. Thank you. Next, I'm joined in the studio by Rufus Pollack, the founder and president of Open Knowledge, a global nonprofit organization focused on realizing open data's value to society. Dr. Pollack is an economist by training, and he's been a pioneer in the open data movement. He's advised national governments, intergovernmental organizations, and companies and nonprofits on how to succeed in the digital world through these open practices. And what's interesting is often we both go to these events and we spar on stage because I'm, although a proponent for this view, I also believe in the role for proprietary practices as well. The good news is that he's in the studio today to talk about his new book, The Open Revolution, New Rules for a New World. Hello, Rufus. Hello. Rufus, describe what you mean by open revolution. Well, really simply, we start from the point that I think is just obvious to us, that something's going on, that we've had the digital revolution, things are changing. But what does that mean? Is it just about the gadgets or gizmos, or is there something more profound? And that's what the book is about, that there is. Fundamentally, will this revolution, this digital revolution, give us digital dictatorships or digital democracies, if you like, particularly in an economic sense? I'm a free market supporter in the sense of what does that mean at a basic level? It means freedom of enterprise, freedom for entrepreneurs to innovate, and freedom of choice. And that's what we see disappearing today. I don't really have a choice but to use Facebook. And if I wanted to innovate in that space... I would have to basically have Facebook's permission. The kill zone, in fact, that The Economist talked about a few weeks ago, this sense that around the big tech monopolies, there's, you have to either be bought by them or be destroyed by them. But it was the open platform of the internet that gave rise to these great companies. Exactly. Aren't, aren't we venerating the power of openness by supporting Facebook and Google? What we're venerating there is the incredible power of the open platform that was the internet. I mean, the greatest flowering of innovation that we've ever seen and freedom of enterprise we've ever seen. What we want to do is, though, maintain that. Is there a way that we don't have to have monopolies, but we can have that kind of entrepreneurship and innovation? Can we pay innovators at the same time as have openness and the freedom of choice and enterprise that that brings? Now, you argue that we can by being more open. Yes, and secondarily, crucially, innovating in our institutions. So innovating in ownership, if you like. So what... A crucial point about the book is that a lot of this discourse about tech, it's about privacy, surveillance, AI, or the blockchain, but it's not really about any of that, the kind of the gadgetry on the top. It's about the basic rules of the information age. It's very simply put, what we have in the information age, the basic change is costless copying. The basic change from a world of atoms to bits is that I cannot costly copy a car. I cannot click my fingers or push a button and have a Ferrari for everyone on the planet or more land. But I can do that with a piece of software or a piece of music. And we're working through the implications of that as a society. Is that a virtue or a vice? So exactly. In a sense, that's just a fact. Just like it's a fact of the world that if I'm wearing my shoes You can't wear them at the same time, Ken, unless it's a very odd situation, (laughs) right? But I can share with you an idea or a piece of music, and I keep my copy and you have yours. I may have lost the chance to charge you for it, but as a physical fact of the universe. And what I like to say is what the implications of that are for the world 
is kind of catalyzed or transmuted by the rules we create. But the question of what that turns out to in terms of society, in terms of enterprise, free markets, innovation and inequality depends on the rules we combine it by. And so the point here is we're combining this cost as copy at the moment with monopoly rights, patents and copyrights. And if that were the only way to pay for innovation, I would be an ardent supporter. We need to pay innovators and creators. One of the issues I think sometimes the open movement is almost like stuff will just grow on trees. No, we have to pay. But is there a way that we can pay innovators and creators but allow for openness at the same time? But your openness seems to be pointing in this direction that is anti-market and quasi-socialist or communist, really, in which if a company has developed all the effort to create a drug and they charge a lot of money for it, one person might have said, well, that's just the capitalist market and the glory of it, having created this new drug. But for you to say, no, if the costless copying can exist and people can take this formula and, and produce at a lower price, they should have the rights to do it. If you don't like patents, patents gave the company the certainty to invest. Absolutely. I'm in total, in a sense, in total agreement in that companies that invest in risky things and do well need to get paid. Fantastic. That's what I want. The question, though, at the moment when we give out monopoly rights, we think they're like property rights, but they're this fundamental difference. The obvious difference is I have a close relative who has got a serious lung illness. And right now, the cost of that drug is £75,000 a year. And my relative is not getting it. The NHS don't pay for it. They can't afford it. Now, what's the consequence of that at the moment? My relative will die and the drug company won't get any money because they can't afford it. However, the actual cost of manufacturing a new course of that treatment for my relative is only about £500. The other 74500 is going for the research. So the basic proposal is a two-part payment model. The cost of information goods, software, medicines, music, have kind of two parts. There's the, the fixed cost of the R&D, writing the song in the first place, and then there's the cheap marginal cost. It might be zero for digital stuff or very low for medicines relative maybe to the R&D. And the basic question you ask yourself, monopoly rights, patents and copyright, have us in a world where we only have one tool to pay for two things, the basic price we charge. So, of course, I actually support this company charging this amount of money, even if it's so terrible for my relative. If that's the only way the innovators will be able to invest to come up with new drugs, then that's just too bad. But it isn't. We could pay for the two things separately. We can pay a subscription-like fee to pay for the fixed cost, and then we can pay the actual cost of manufacturing when we purchase it. And the funny thing is we already see this happening. Spotify exemplifies this. In the old days, even of iTunes, we would pay per track, 99 cents a track. But we know there are issues. I mean, students would buy iPods with 20,000 track capacity, and I don't know any students with 20,000 to spend on music. So we can see that issue of access even right there. But what happens if we move to a subscription model like Spotify? We pay a fixed fee, and then it's all you can eat. And that's the remuneration rights model. And in, if you like, we have open access, but we have money in a fund to pay for it. And even better... We don't need the government involved in distributing the money. We need the government involved in making sure we all contribute fairly, but the gov we can have free markets determining how the money goes out in the sense that we can distribute money like in Spotify or for drugs based on what drugs get used and how effective they are. Rufus, great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. It's been a pleasure to be here. 
You're listening to Babbage on Economist Radio. And if you haven't already, try a subscription to The Economist. Just go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for £12 or $12. Now, many of our regular Babbage listeners know that occasionally on the show, we give away a book and sadly just one book to a lucky listener who emails us at radio at economist.com. The book this week is The Open Revolution, Rewriting the Rules of the Information Age by Rufus Pollack, who we've interviewed this week on the show. And the question is this. It is the year 2050. What is the title and subtitle of a best-selling economics book? Come up with your answer. Send it to us at radio at economist.com. And if we like the one that you've come up with, we'll send you the book. Finally, glasses and productivity. For people in rich countries, the onset of long-sightedness means nipping around to the chemist to pick up reading glasses and carrying on with their lives. However, in poor countries, it's not quite so easy. But a new trial of reading glasses for tea pickers in Assam in northeast India has shown the biggest productivity increase than from any other medical intervention. To discuss the trial, I'm joined in the studio by the economist Emma Duncan. Hello, Emma. Hi. Emma, tell us, What was the trial? Some uh, scientists from around the world selected a group of 751 tea pickers who were people who were shown in eye tests to be long-sighted, divided them in half, gave half of them reading specs and the other half didn't have reading specs. And when they looked at their productivity after 11 weeks, the control group's productivity had increased a bit because that often happens in trials when people are being observed. But the group that had been given the specs, their productivity increased by 20 percentage points more than the control group. So the control group's productivity increased by, I think, 18 percent and the intervention group's productivity increased by 39 percent. So it's a huge win for productivity. And the solution is really simple. Unbelievably simple, isn't it? I mean, this is about the most simple form of technology that you can imagine that could have that big a difference. The researchers trawled through all the papers they could find on medical interventions and labor productivity. And they found that this result gave a bigger jump in productivity than any of the others, which were mostly about mosquito nets and micronutrients. So now that we know what the right thing is, what are people going to do to correct the problem and get glasses to those who need it? Well, that's a really interesting thing because you'd have thought the glasses were so simple and cheap that this is something that the market would provide. And there are bits of the developing world where that does happen, but an extraordinarily large amount of it where that doesn't happen. I mean, to the extent that the problem of unaddressed long sight appears to be one um, which 1.1 billion people suffer from. I've actually just been on the phone with... um, a garment worker in a factory in India. He's a tailor. Uh, he does a lot of stitching by hand. But he said for him, it's it's an amazing new lease of life because he said before he had the specs, he was always being singled out at the end of the day as, you know, the guy who'd done the low, the low quality work. And that simply doesn't happen anymore. His pay is about to re- be reviewed. He's expecting an increment in pay. And this is life changing for somebody in that situation. So, I mean, going back to what you say, what do we do about this? 
there's a social enterprise called Vision Spring that's trying to combat this problem by, as it were, turning long-sighted women into sort of Avon ladies, you know, giving them specs, having them go around door to door to sell them to people doing rudimentary eye tests. So that model is kind of beginning to spread, but it's very slow. That's great. Well, it's really good news. So, Emma, thank you very much. And that's all for this edition of Babbage. Don't forget to pick up the latest issue of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. I'm Kenneth Kukier, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.